So we continue in 1 John, and we're in chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Uh, we call this study Walk in the Light because uh, that's a theme that comes up over and over again in the book of 1 John. John says the purpose of the book in chapter 5, verse 13, says the purpose of the book is so that you would know that you have, eter of, have eternal life. As I shared with you last week, we often, when so we meet somebody who's like, well, I'm just not sure I'm saved, we try to boost their self-esteem and tell them, no, no, you're a really good person. And as I shared with you with my, my friend, my, my grandmother's best friend, that didn't work for her. And years later, I realized why, because she knew herself better than I did. So if you just try to tell somebody how good they are, who's doubting their salvation, that generally doesn't help them because they're thinking, yeah, but if you knew the kinds of thoughts that go on in my head, if you knew the kinds of things I say when I'm behind closed doors, if you knew what I said or did to that person or this unforgiveness that I'm holding on to, you wouldn't think that. So you, you don't start with the person if you want assurance. You start with God. And that's true of you too. Because statistically speaking, there's probably a person or two in this room, maybe more than that, who struggle with that sense of assurance. The devil wants you to keep thinking about your failures and your flaws. The devil wants you to keep thinking about your past. When, when God says, I've already taken care of that. I've taken care of your past and your present and your future. You have to look at him. That's where you gain assurance. And what, to look at him means to walk in the light of, of grace, to walk in the light of the gospel. So John uh, picks up with verse 12 and, and writes, I am writing to you, little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you children, because you know the father. I write to you fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So what John does in the passage we're looking at tonight, we just read half of it. He addresses three different groups in the church. And then, the part we haven't read yet, he gives some instruction on how to interact with the world. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But first, I want to, I want to talk about this part we just looked at. Because, uh, first of all, if you read this in your own Bible, you might notice, if it's like mine, it, the, the copy or the, the print is kind of set apart. It, it's structured differently. It's different looking paragraphs because the translators saw that John was writing sort of poetically. There was a rhythm to his writing in just this section. You know, I don't know about you, but I never just spontaneously burst into poetry. But biblical authors sometimes did, and that's what John's doing here. He's also addressing three different groups. Now, here's what I need you to hear, and if you disagree with me, that's fine. You know, the grace of God says we're both still going to heaven, but... I don't think you need to take those terms literally. When he says fathers, I don't think he's talking just to men who have children. In fact, I don't think he's talking just to men. It's just kind of characteristic of the world for about 2,000 years that when you said men, you meant everybody. When you said uh, mankind, you meant everybody. It's only been in our, our age, basically, where we've started saying, you know, we should include women in this thing, too. We should say men and women. Uh, that wasn't the case for 2,000 years. So when he says fathers, he's not just talking to men, and he's not just talking to daddies. He's talking to the older people of the congregation, the spiritual fathers and mothers 
of the congregation. He's talking to uh, the people who have uh, been following Jesus for decades, and the congregation leans on their wisdom, his advice to them, his word to them, his reminder to them is, you know him who is from the beginning. So if you fall into that category, if you would say, yeah, I kind of fit that. I've been following Jesus for a long, long time. And while I'm still serving him, I'm maybe not doing as much as I used to just because I'm at an age where I don't have the energy I once had. You fall into that category. And what he's saying to you is, you're somebody special and important to any congregation because of what you know, because you've been with the Lord for a long, long time. And you may not be able to go off for a week to youth camp like you did when you were in your 40s and 50s, but you know things that those 40 and 50-year-olds don't. I don't mean about the world. I mean about God because of the time you've spent with Him. This is something the Lord convicted me of in my own quiet time this week. I was reading Hosea, and he was the Lord through Hosea was uh, angry at Israel, specifically at the priests of Israel. And he said, my people don't even know me. You're supposed to teach them about me, and they don't know me because you haven't been teaching them. And it reminded me how we emphasize action, and we should. A person who serves the Lord needs to serve the Lord, not just sit and soak. But how important it is to know God, to know His Word. That's the beginning You've got to preach. You've got to teach. And those of you who aren't in teaching or preaching positions, you've got to share what you know. Because people, younger people, uh, need to know the Lord. Folks in the church need to hear what you know. The knowledge of God is important. See, here's the thing. When you look at Israelite history, what happened when the people forgot who God was? That's when they turned to idols. That's when they said, oh, hey, I, my, my pagan neighbor uh, is out there offering a sacrifice to Baal, and, and he says he's the god of the storm, the god of rain, and, and it hadn't rained here in a while. Well, yeah, why not? I, I might as well do that too, because I, I want rain. Whereas if you knew the Lord, you would say, I don't need to sacrifice to some false god. God will send rain when it's time. I know that I can trust him because of what he's done in the past. You see? If you know the Lord, you don't fall for idols. As an older believer, if you fall into this category, your prayers, your testimony, sharing with as many people as possible, this is what God has done in my life. Um, you're, you're mentoring, coming alongside a young man or young woman or a young couple and saying, hey, just want to have you over to the house for dinner or I want to take you out to a restaurant and buy you dinner and, and just, just want to hear how, how you're doing so I can be in prayer for you. That's invaluable. That's how you uh, hand off faith to the next generation. And, you know, I'm not saying that you have to tell them everything you know. There are plenty of things that you know that they don't want to hear, but they need to hear about how you met the Lord and what the Lord's done in your life. They need your prayers. They need your mentor. All right, I skipped uh, over the children. I need to go back. When he's talking to children, again, I don't think he's talking to literal people 18 and under, although they're included in this. He's talking, I believe, to new believers. And remember, we've already seen one of the presenting problems that John is addressing in this letter 
is that people are wandering away after false teaching. The reason why, it seems to us, the reason why these people that John's writing to were struggling with their assurance of salvation is they had seen people they respected walk away from the church and say, I've found something better than the apostles' teaching. I've found something, quote unquote, better than the gospel. So he's talking here to new believers who are especially vulnerable to that kind of thing. And his reminder is two things. If you're a new believer, your sins are forgiven and you know the Father. Those are two important reminders. Why would you stray from the one who has rescued you? Why would you walk away from the one who has forgiven your sins? Baal can't do that. Zeus can't do that. This, these uh, mystical, strange, angelic gods that the Gnostics worship, they can't do that. Why would you stray from him? And you now have access to the Father, the one and only God. You can't get that anywhere else. And so what I think he would say is, when you don't know what to do, and you're hearing things that, say, that you think, I don't know, that's not what I was taught. Can that be true? Don't find your answers on the internet. Of course, John's not saying that, but that, that would be his modern day, modern day application. And don't just talk to your friends who are at the same spiritual stage you are at. Go lean on some older, trusted believers, people who've been through the wars, and say, here's what I heard. Here's what I read. Here's what my friends said. Does that square with Scripture as far as you know? Does that make sense? Now, can older believers be wrong? Of course, they're human. But if every person you know who's faithfully followed the Lord and who tries their best to conform their lives to the Word of God, if every person you know in that category is saying, oh, no, no, that's, that's wrong, you better step, and step back and take a look. You better, you better hit pause before you proceed, okay? Are you the one person that's found the truth when everybody else hasn't? Probably not. And then the third group he talks to is young men. Again, not just men and not just those who are physically young, but I think he's addressing people who are in what we would call the prime of life physically, who there's nothing physical stopping them from doing whatever the Lord has laid on their heart to do. And they're not new believers. They're mature enough spiritually to be asked to do, to take on some leadership roles, to, to do the hard work of ministry. And his reminder to them, and that's a lot of people in this room, you are strong, you have overcome, and the word abides in you. Now understand when he says you're strong, he's not talking about your strength in yourself. He's not talking about how much you can bench press. He's also not talking about what a strong Christian you are by your own nature. He's talking about you have strength because Christ is in you. Never forget that. People, there's so many Christians who underestimate what God can accomplish in and through them. So many people who let the devil intimidate them from doing what God has called them to do because, well, I just, I just can't see why God would choose me for that. Well, have you read the Bible lately? Would you have chosen any of those people? I mean, aside from Jesus, maybe Daniel, would you have chosen any of them? God loves to choose people the world counts out. So if you don't think much of yourself, don't worry, because God thinks a lot of you. 
and God has a plan to use you. You are strong, you have overcome, and the word abides in you, which means, okay, let me, let me go off on this very, very biblical tangent, okay? Whatever stage you're in, and I know I'm preaching to the choir here because you're here on a Wednesday night when you don't even have to be, but I need to affirm what you're doing. Never, ever stop learning the word of God. Never stop. You will never get to the end of it. I can promise you. You will never get to the point where you say, okay, I've got that down. What now? Let me just remind you of Joshua. In Joshua 1.8, I think this is in your notes. Joshua, this is at the beginning of the book, obviously. Chapter 1, verse 8. Think about it. Moses has just died. You're Joshua. You've been following Moses your whole life. You've been his right-hand man, his gopher. Now Moses is gone and everybody's looking at you. Some of you have been in this position in your workplace, by the way, I know. And it's a, that's an intimidating position to be in. And God comes to Joshua and he gives him this really incredible pep talk. But part of it is Joshua 1.8. He says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. Why does he say from your mouth? Well, I don't even know if Moses had written the, the book down, the, the Pentateuch down in a, in a form that Joshua could access. We don't know that. But here's what we also know. In the ancient world, you didn't just read. You know, for us, let me, let me put it this way. When we get to be older than about seven or eight, we stop reading out loud, right? When, when we're reading about Dick and Jane and Spot, we're, we're reading in our heads and we think, okay, I've, I've grown up now. I don't need to read out loud. The ancients read out loud. And after they read, they walked around repeating what they'd heard out loud as they, as they tended their sheep, as they did their laundry, as they went about their day, they were repeating the word of God. They were muttering the word of God. That's what God is telling Joshua to do. Not just hear it once, but repeat it, recycle it. Mull it over and over and over in your mind. Meditate on it day and night. For then it will make your way prosperous. And then you will have good success. However, I also included James 1.22. Because you have to balance that. And this I do need to say to a group like this. That it's hungry enough for the word that you show up on a 95 degree evening on a Wednesday night. Information alone does not equal transformation. Let me tell you, that is hard for me to say, because what I love doing most in ministry is preaching, teaching, and writing. So if, if, if God could tell me, all you have to do is preach the word and people's lives will be transformed and you can go home a happy man, I would be thrilled. But it doesn't work that way. Information alone does not equal transformation. In fact, knowledge on its own can make us arrogant, can make us self-righteous. That's why James in James 1.22 says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving themselves, deceiving yourselves. Remember, James was the brother of Jesus. He knew that the people who, who hated his brother the most in his earthly life were people who knew the word by heart. The Pharisees had all 613 commands of the Old Testament memorized. And yet they hated God in the flesh when he came. Information does not equal transformation.
You can't just learn it, you have to apply it. And when I say apply it, you have to avoid the temptation to read everything through the lens of how can I weaponize this against everybody else? Because we're good at that. If you've been in church for a while, you get good at spotting other people's sins. It's one of the dangers of being religious. You have to fight against that. And, and therefore, you, whenever you hear a sermon, you think, boy, I wish old Bob would have heard that. When you read the Bible, you think, man, I wish Janie was here. I, I'd, give, I'd quote this right to her. When God's up there saying, no, I meant it for you. I wanted you to apply this to your life. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. Don't deceive yourselves. And when I say things like that, those of us who've grown up in church or been in church a while, we immediately jump to the quote-unquote scandalous sins. Oh, yeah, yeah. If I, if I ever committed some scandalous sin, when I read the word, I would be convicted and I would repent. But what about the sins of omission? What about the moments when we should have been compassionate, but we weren't? What about the times when we should have forgiven, but instead we held a grudge? What about the times when we had opportunities to share faith with someone, but we kept our silence? We read about those all through the scriptures. Be, hearer, be doers of the word and not hearers only. Don't just avoid sin. You also have to do the things the word commands. All right. So that's that first section. Now, the second section gets even more interesting. He says in verse 15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So I've said this before, y'all probably know this, the Bible uses the word the world in two different ways. And you can't tell based on the Hebrew or the Greek which one it is. Uh, there's two ways. The first is the one you see in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But then he also says, and this is the second way, James 4.4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. If you've never read the Bible before and you read those two verses, you think, hold on. So God loved the world enough to send his son to die for it. But if we're friends with the world, we're enemies with God. How does that make sense? Well, he's using the term in two different ways. And the only way to tell is by context. When he is talking about his compassion for the world, when he's talking about his love for the world, he's referring to planet Earth and the people on it, specifically the people on it. So John 3.16 is about every human being on this planet who's ever lived and ever will live. But when he talks about don't be a friend of the world, he's not talking about people. He's not talking about the planet. He's not talking about anything physical. He is talking about the, phys the, the world system, the, the way things are, the values of our present age. I'm going to give you kind of a weird example of what I'm talking about, okay? Think back to when you were in high school, or if it's been too long, think about a high schooler you know, okay? If you haven't, if you haven't seen this, there's a law of the jungle that exists on every high school campus, 
And that includes Christian high schools as well as public ones. In the law of the jungle according to uh, on a high school campus, there are things that adults can't control. No matter how many rules you apply, uh, the strong survive. The beautiful get their way, right? If you look a certain way, if you're a good athlete, if you are self-promoting, uh, you can be mean to people, you can uh, be promiscuous, you can be rebellious, and you rise to the top. The other kids just sort of worship you. And what you say goes. It's a cruel world. Any of you who are teachers here know what I'm talking about. Any of you who remember your high school years, remember. You don't want to go back there because it's mean, it's tough. That's the world in microcosm. You know how uh, uh, like a really mean girl, a really mean 16-year-old girl can just wreck so many lives. And yet adults look at her and say, oh, she's, she's a sweetheart. She's getting away with it because she knows how to work the system. That's the world. I'll give you another example of the world. And this also applies to kids, although from the other end of it. Um, when you see little girls being, I hate to use this word, but being sexualized, being shown images and this is the way you should look, you know, you should buy these clothes because this is what that famous pop singer wears. That's the world at work. God didn't create that. That's the world. Here's maybe a less uncomfortable one. Uh, when you see uh, uh, people who commit crimes and yet because they can afford good legal representation, they get a slap on the wrist at most. That's the world. That's the world at work. Do you see what I'm talking about? It's the way things are. It's the value system of today. The rules that apply in, quote unquote, the world aren't God's rules. And we as Christians can get discouraged because the world gets, gets us down and we find ourselves struggling. Sometimes we give in. Sometimes we say, I'm going to play by the world's rules because that'll, that'll make life easier for me. But it never works out in the long run. It takes strength. It takes courage to not be a friend of the world. The world is an idol that competes with God for our affections. And so John describes it in three ways. This is, this is how he describes the world. Very picturesque. He says, first of all, it is, the world is the desires of the flesh. Now be clear, all desire is not bad. In fact, desire on its own is neutral. It can, it's either good or bad, depending on how you use it. Uh, if men and women didn't desire each other, there would be no families, right? If we didn't desire food, we'd starve to death. Desire on its own is not bad, but the desire of the flesh is when you pursue your own desires independent of God's will for you. Think about it. That's the temptation of the serpent in the Garden of, Gethsemane, the Garden of Eden. What did he say? He said, look, there's that fruit. Isn't it beautiful? Doesn't it look good? Doesn't it look like it would be good to eat? And by the way, the reason God told you not to eat it because he knew how much fun you would have, how, how, how it would enlighten your mind. He doesn't want you to enjoy life. He doesn't want you to, to live to your full potential. He's trying to keep you down. That's the voice of the world saying, yeah, believing in God is fine. Believe all you want, but just understand, if you want to have real fun, if you really want to get the most out of life, you can't just let God tell you what to do. 
the desires of the flesh. It says, God is not out for your best. He's using you, not loving you. And, and this is something we need to know uh, as we relate to people who are in, caught in that world system. Most people will never come to Christ until they've come to the end of themselves. Most people will never come to Christ until they've seen the world for what it is and realized, I'm never going to get there. Some of you are praying, hopefully all of you are praying for specific lost people. And some of you I know are, are frustrated because you're like, I've prayed for this person for years. When I try to talk to them about the Lord, they won't listen. Uh, when I invite them to church, they just laugh. Don't give up. Because the day will come when the world will bite them. The day will come when their heart will be broken. I'm not telling you to root for that. <laughs> I'm certainly not telling you to make it happen or be happy when it does happen. I'm telling you to be there for them when it does because that's when they'll be open. If ever they'll be open, it will be then when their heart is broken and they've seen the world for what it is. And one more thing on this. When you talk about the desires of the flesh, uh, unfortunately, one aspect of American Christianity, one of the reasons we need revival in this country is a lot of Christians today think that their Christianity is about tricking God into giving them the desires of their flesh. I'm going to church. I'm, I'm giving donations. I'm uh, doing good deeds. I'm saying no to my temptations. Now, God, you give me what I want. You know, I'm single, therefore you're going to give me a husband, right? Or, or a wife. I, I don't have kids. You're going to give me kids, right? I got kids and they're crazy. So you're going to straighten them out, right? Because I'm doing, I'm doing the right thing. You're going to give me a higher paying job. You're going to, et cetera. And, and what you're really doing is you're making God a co-conspirator in your own love of the world. I'm not saying your desires are bad, but when your desires lead your relationship with God instead of your relationship with God leading your desires... That's when you get into love of the things of the world, the desires of the flesh. And modern preaching feeds into this. How many times have you heard sermons about, here's how you can have a healthy financial bottom line. Principles from the Bible on how to have a healthy financial bottom line, how to, how to straighten out your kids, how to, you know. I'm not saying that following God doesn't give you some principles that help you make good decisions. But that's not the purpose of the scriptures. The purpose of the scriptures is that you might know the Lord. And you let him take care of all that. All right. Um, number two, he talks about the desires of the eyes. The desires of the eyes. And that's not just sexual lust, although it's certainly included in there, but it's also talking about greed. It's also talking about envy. Um, I think of the story of Achan in, Je in Joshua chapter 7. This is not something that gets preached a lot. But uh, after the battle of Jericho, this wonderful, incredible, triumphant moment when this, the biggest city in the promised land is sacked by the, by the Israelites, the walls come tumbling down. They couldn't believe it. It happened. Now they're thinking, we can never lose with God on our side. And what happens next? They get defeated. Why? They get defeated by this piddly little city. We don't even know where it is today. It doesn't exist. Why do they lose? Because one guy, God told them, don't take anything from Jericho. Don't take anything. Burn it all. One guy sneaks in there and takes just a few things, just a little bit of gold, a little rug, just a few things, and he hides them in his tent. His name was Achan. Now, what happened to Achan? Well, when they found out that 
Uh, he had caused their defeat. They killed him. They, they executed him. Actually, they executed his whole family, which is not what God intended, but that's what they did. Not only did he bring about the death of himself and his own family, he caused his whole nation to suffer defeat. He caused 36 people to die in a battle that they should have easily won. And that's what we don't think about. When we're caught up in temptation, when we are, we've all done this, when we're doing that mental calculus that says, I can do this bad thing. I deserve to do this bad thing because of all the good stuff I've done and all the times I've said no to temptation. I deserve one little moment of pleasure. I, I deserve this. And by the way, who's it really hurting? It's not going to hurt anybody but me. And I, I think it's worth it. And we underestimate the cost of our sin to others. Always, always, always. So the best, the best sermon I ever heard on this was preached by a man who didn't listen to his own sermon. He preached a sermon on that passage, Joshua 7. And the title of the, sin, of the sermon was, How Much Will Your Sin Cost Me? And he told the story of Achan. And he talked about a, a man he knew in his church that, uh, that uh, ran off on his wife. And the deacons called the pastor and said, you got to help us go talk to this guy and talk him into coming back home to his wife and went to this guy's house and it went on and on and on. And the guy at first refused and finally they managed to convince him to come home to his wife. And in the process of all that, the pastor forgot that he had a wedding that day. And so this, this couple, you know, standing there at the altar waiting for the preacher to be there and they couldn't have their wedding. And he said, you know, this guy, and he listed other things that happened as a result of his sin. He said, he did something selfish that hurt his wife and kids immeasurably, but he didn't think about the other people who'd be hurt by his actions. And I'm sitting there listening to this, and I'm thinking, wow, what a great sermon. I wish I would have thought of that. You know, what can I legally steal? You know, this is good stuff. And a few years later, that guy stumbled and fell. His name was Ted Haggard. Anybody remember him? Megachurch pastor in Colorado Springs. Did not listen to his own sermon the damage that his sin caused was monumental and still reverberates today. The desires of the eyes can lead us into terrible, terrible things. We need to always, always be aware. It's not just about us. And then number three, he mentions the pride of life. The pride of life is about uh, thinking about our public image. It's about exalting ourselves. And if concern for your public image outstrips your, your passion for God's glory and the health of his people and the liberation of the lost, it has become idolatry. I think one of the biggest idols we struggle with is that idol of, of approval. For some of it, it's a quest for applause and, and being noticed and, and being the center of attention. For others uh, who are more quiet and private, it, it boils down to, I just want to make sure this person thinks that I'm doing well. I just want to make sure my parents my spouse, my kids, my colleagues. I want to make sure they respect me and esteem me. But if that is the big deal in your life, then it will get in the way of your walk with God. It's the pride of life. This is why Jesus so often preached, the first shall be last and the last first. I think that was his, the, the saying he repeated more often than any because he wanted us to know the people who are on top in this world aren't necessarily going to be on top in the next world. So you can work your whole life to try to get to the top and to get everybody to notice you. 
and then you get to the gates of heaven and realize it was all for nothing. I read a great quote uh, from John Chrysostom, preacher from like the two or three hundreds AD. And he said, if you realized how quickly people would, were going to forget you after you died, you wouldn't waste so much time trying to impress humans. You'd be more free to serve the Lord. That's pretty cold-blooded from somebody 2,000 years ago, but he's right. And just as a little word of testimony from me, um, one, of the, one of the ways God used COVID in my life, you know, we had that, I hate to even bring it up, such an unpleasant time, but March of 2020 when things started shutting down and the county said, okay, no gatherings over 50, and, and we as a church, we as church leadership decided we're going to do whatever the county says, and so, okay, we were shut down for a while, and we didn't know how long this was going to last or what it was going to lead to. And I remember sitting there thinking, who knows? I mean, I may not have a church when this is over. There might not be, uh, who, is anybody going to give during this time? Are people going to watch? As I'm sitting there preaching online, I wasn't built to be a televangelist. Uh, are people going to leave and go to other churches? What, what's going to happen? And God used that in my life to change my perspective. You see, all my life as a pastor, it hurt me deeply when someone left my church. Even though 99 times out of 100, they did it in a nice way. They'd come up and say, oh, preacher, it's not you. It's just, you know, my kids like this program over here. Or, you know, they, they've got a bigger choir. Or they, you know, for whatever reason. Sometimes they wouldn't tell me why, but they'd say, I'm not mad at you. We just like this place better. And I'd, I'd be nice, but I always took it personal. I always did. It hurt. And after COVID, I have this sense of saying, you know, it's okay. As long as they're going to church somewhere, I'm fine. I really am. And I no longer measure myself by the number of people sitting in the pews. It's all right. It's okay. That's not what God's going to judge me on anyway. It took something like COVID to do that to me. What is it going to take for you to get over your pride of life? You know, whatever foolish way you have of measuring yourself and looking at success. What is it going to take for you to get to the point of saying, you know, all that matters is, am I doing what God put me here to do to the best of my ability? Am I holding nothing back from Him and leave the results up to Him? So last verse, in verse 17, he says, the world is passing away. In Revelation 18, there's this, this long chapter where it describes the fall of Babylon. It starts with the words, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. This big party in heaven as they see Babylon the great fall. And you read this description of Babylon and it's talking about, uh, you know, merchants are sad because they don't have a place to bring their wares anymore. And, and you know, people are sad because there's not money being changing hands, etc. And you're thinking, what is this about? Because... Babylon, by the time Revelation was written, Babylon hadn't existed for hundreds of years. So there's all kinds of theories on what John is talking about, but I'll tell you what I think he's talking about. And this is confident as I will ever be in sharing my perspective on Revelation. I think Babylon is talking about the world. Not planet Earth, but the system of this world. And what it's saying is, if you're good at playing by the world's rules, and you're getting ahead by playing by the world's rules, 
then the day Jesus returns is going to be the worst day of your life. And you're going to say, I threw my life away. I wasted everything. Whereas if you're one of those people who's constantly having to, having to struggle through and you know, I could make more money if I did things the world's way. I could have more friends if I did things the world's way. I could have more of these experiences if I just played by the world's rules. The day Jesus returns, you're going to rejoice because you're going to realize I chose the right horse, right? I, I, I picked the right path. And now he's king. And things are going to work the way they should have worked all along. It's sort of like this. I use this illustration a lot, actually. Um, if you can imagine during the Civil War, imagine you were able to go back in time to the middle of the Civil War, and you met a couple of different people who were wealthy, and they were saying, um, so you're from the future, how, how should I spend my money? How should I invest? And the first guy says, what I'm doing is, I'm accumulating as much Confederate currency as I can. And the other guy says, well... I don't think this confederacy is going to last. I'm, I'm doing my best to, you know, get those greenbacks. Well, if you love those two guys, you're going to tell them, yeah, you're right. This system you're in right now, it's not long for the world. And all that money you've accumulated is going to be worthless. By the time it's worth something as an artifact, you won't be alive to enjoy it. So trade that in for money that's going to last. You see the point, right? So we use the resources, the talents, the opportunities we have in this world, we can use them to play by the world's rules and we might see some short-term success. Maybe, if we're good at it, a certain number of people are. But if we instead use all those things to exchange it for heavenly currency, we'll rejoice in that for the rest of our lives. Which one of those is more like you and the way you're living? Now I want us to pray in a different way here at the end. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to bow your heads and I'm going to kind of lead you through some silent prayer. And just to give you a heads up, I want you to pray for, some, for yourself, for someone older than you or someone that you would consider uh, an older person, a father or mother of the church, someone uh, who's in that prime of life stage, a young-ish young person that you know, and pray for a new believer. If you can't think of somebody that fits any of those three categories, pray that God would lay them on your heart. But uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer right now. I'm going to guide you. Just pray silently. First, I want you to pray for yourself. Pray that the Holy Spirit would show you to what extent you're living by the world's rules. How much are you a friend of the world instead of a follower of God? Ask him to show you if there's anything you should be doing that you're not. However you want to word that. Is there any person you need to forgive that you haven't forgiven? Any act of compassion you need to perform? Is there any person you're supposed to be investing in, sharing with, that you haven't?
Now let's mention some of our, in your own mind, in your own heart, some of our uh, older saints, people who've been serving the Lord a long time. Let's pray for them that they would be encouraged. The world tells them that they are not as useful because of their age, but the Bible disagrees and God disagrees. Pray that they would see that they matter and that they have a powerful role to play. Pray for some people you know, or at least one specific person who's uh, a younger Christian, but someone who has followed the Lord a while and either is serving in ministry, in leadership, or should be. And let's pray that God would keep them from the evil one, that he would encourage them in what they do, and that he would uh, mature them in their service and leadership of him. Now lift up in prayer somebody who is a relatively new believer, somebody who's either a young person, like a a teenager or child, or a very young adult, or somebody who's recently come to faith. And uh, pray that that they would remember who their Savior is and would, would trust in Jesus and would not be drawn astray by false teaching. Pray that they would grow up into mature men and women of God. Lord, the prayers of your people are powerful. And so I know that what's going on right now is powerful and important. And I pray that we would pray this way more often. But Lord, right now, we we just ask that your Holy Spirit would empower, encourage, would strengthen, would protect the people of this church, uh, those who are years in the faith, those who are veterans of serving you, help them to see and be inspired by how much they can still get done for your sake. I pray, Lord, that they would not underestimate their abilities I pray, Father, for young leaders in our church, uh, young ministers and and servants, that, Lord, help them to see that there's so many demands on their time, so many ways they could use their energies and talents. Help them to see the reward and the usefulness of giving fully to your service. Help them to find their role. And I pray that we, who sort of hold the keys to that, would give them opportunities to take leadership, and would not tell them, uh, would not shout them down or discourage them. Pray, Lord, for the new believers in our church, for the young people in our student ministry and our children's ministry, people who are uh, newer to the faith. Help us to nurture their faith, to disciple them as we should. Lord, show us how. There's so many things we don't know. I pray, Lord, that we would be the church you want us to be, that we would be a church that makes people complete in you. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.